Okay, so I used to teach sixth graders in Japan, right? And things are different over there as a teacher. First and foremost, the teacher is always right. All this stuff about parents showing up at the school to cuss you out because little Johnny got a bad grade? No, that does not happen. In Japan, what the teacher says goes. And the teachers are free to use whatever discipline methods they can concoct with nary a word of complaint from anybody. Paddles? Sure. Wrap knuckles? Absolutely. Have the kids sit in crouched positions in freezing weather, balancing a book on their heads while reciting some obscure poem from the 14th century? <laughs> well, that depends on the school district. Now, I had a class full of eager young minds, ready to soak up everything I tried to impart. And every single student was a nice kid that tried hard and actually made teaching a joy. Every kid, of course, except one. I'm going to call him Tato-chan. And Tato-chan was a bad kid. Tato pulled the girl's hair. Tato spat on my floor. Tato did not do his homework. But worst of all, Tato handed out nicknames. Nicknames that stuck. I'd seen what he'd done to the assistant principal, Mr. Pickleface. Even I called the poor man that. So one day, when I was trying to teach the class that the rain in Spain fell mainly in the plain, Tato actually raised his hand. Yes, Tato. Baka sensei, Mr. Crazy Teacher, what are you talking about? And instantly I knew that Baka sensei, Crazy Teacher, had a nice ring to it. And the rest of the kids tried to stifle their laughter. I knew I had to do something at once. I would not spend the rest of my teaching career known as Mr. Crazy Teacher. Do not call your teacher that name. What name, Baka-sensei? Ah, that name, Taro. What, you don't want me to call you Baka-sensei, Baka-sensei? Now it was on. I don't believe in corporal punishment. No flair to it. So I had to think. I had to look into this kid's soul and think what punishment would restore the proper classroom equilibrium. Now, I taught at an old school, and behind this school sat an old, old-fashioned outhouse. I kicked open the door of our classroom. Come along, children. We're going on a field trip. Everyone followed me as I marched down the hall, past the principal, out of the school, and over to the stinking, fly-infested outhouse. We're going to count to 100, children, but I want you focused. So I'm going to need a volunteer to get into this outhouse and he can only come out when the entire class has counted properly. The look of horror on their faces assured me I was on to something. What? No volunteers? Well then, I'll have to pick someone. Let me see. Tattle-chan, how about you? No, 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 Mr. Teacher, good teacher, sir. No, 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 no. Sorry, Taro. Baka-sensei has plans. In you go. Now, there are no wisecracks from Taro now. He crept over to the outhouse. Sensei, go on side. I'm so sorry. Too late, Taro. In you get. A swarm of angry flies sprang out as he opened the door. And you know, kids are cruel, so they pointed and laughed. Close the door, Taro. Sensei, close the door. All right, kids, I want you to count to 100. And they started. Each knee sounds. No, 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 no. English, please. This is educational. And inside the outhouse, Tato screamed for his release. Not yet, Tato. We have not yet reached 100. He kept shouting and hollering. So we got to around 88, 89. And that's when Tato grew silent. When they hit 100, I said, all right, Tato, you can come out now. I know he's learned his lesson now. Who's the big dog now? Nothing. Toto, you can come out. Silence. And I'm actually kind of getting worried. Toto. Daijoubu. this. He says. In fact, I need to stand here a little longer. Baka-sensei. Today. 
on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Teacher Teacher. Amazing stories from real teachers doing the most important job of all. Some do it well, some don't. And some of the best teachers are not teachers at all. Sharpen your pencils, get those erasers ready. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Some of you are no doubt thinking, Glenn, I'm not so for sure I want you teaching my little Johnny. But I understand teaching is hard. And though I might not be quite up to the task, I know people that are extraordinarily gifted. Our next guest, poet and storyteller David Perez, takes us into his classroom for a day in the life of Brian. Every spring, I teach creative writing to middle schoolers. And at the end of the year, they give a reading in front of the entire school. It's a voluntary program, so I get the kids who are really into writing without someone like me having to dress it up as something else. One year, I had my best group ever. And some people are just born with it. Little Mozarts or Beethovens, the first time they see the black and white keys, they just know how to strike a chord. This usually doesn't happen with writers. Writers need to live first. But this group, 12 years old, and somehow, they had it. There's Mariana, so focused on putting pen to paper that she never hears the bell ring. Javier, who loved Whitman and Neruda before a teacher made them class assignments. Orinella, who had a novel spanning five spiral-bound notebooks. They worked so much that even if they stopped writing tomorrow, they still would have drawn more from their own imaginations than most people ever will. All of them except Brian. When the rest of the class was on their third or fourth polished poem, Brian was still plodding through his first line. He stared at the blank page like it was a plate of raw vegetables. A couple times, I wanted to ask him why he was there, but then... I saw the way he looked at Mariana. His first piece confirmed it. A love poem extolling the beauty of a girl who he insisted wasn't in this class. Someone from his old school. A girl named cleverly Ariana. And when he read the piece in class, throats cleared, eyebrows lifted, and every head swiveled in Mariana's direction. The most beautiful girl in the room. His secret was out, and he knew it. The other students begged me for chances to read out loud, but Brian never read in class again. I didn't force him. I just had him write, and I didn't care if it was only two or three lines at a time or if anyone ever heard it. We'd add a few words, take one away, add, take away, add, until he had it. A poem in ten lines. A real one this time. An extended metaphor about cocoons and how the terror belonging to the creatures inside them is the price of their freedom. Mr. Perez, he asked, I don't think it makes sense. Is it any good? When you teach poetry to 12-year-olds, sometimes you gotta lie. But reading his piece, this wasn't one of those times. I told him as much, knowing that tomorrow was the student poetry reading, an event I host for every class I teach, the one time each year the gym is packed for something other than basketball games or dare assemblies. Under normal circumstances, Brian would rather break dance over shattered glass than share original verse with his assembled peers. But... Mariana's gonna be there. At soundcheck, Brian's pacing backstage, paper wadded in his hands. I have given him five pep talks in the last ten minutes alone. The time comes, and I announce his name to a full auditorium. 
he takes the stage in front of 300 kids. He unfolds his poem, looks at me, looks at the page, leans into the mic, opens his mouth, and says, I'm sorry, everybody. I can't do this. He walks off stage. And I'm about to go back on, trying to think of something to say to the audience, some way to damage control Brian's failure away. But as we pass backstage, he can't even look at me, and I freeze. I see him quietly fall apart in a way that means he will never do this again. I catch myself, wishing he had never written a thing, thinking it's worse to find your truth and leave it than to never have it at all. I tell him, it takes courage to know when poetry is private. Your poem's good, and it's going to stay good whether everyone in this room applauds it or you take it to your grave. I walk back on stage, and I don't remember what I said to the audience. Probably, sorry, probably thank you, probably, that's showbiz, folks. But before I dismiss them, I see their eyes move off of me to some other target on stage. I turn, Brian's back, standing beside me. Mr. Perez, he says, I think I'm ready to read. That's the power of a real teacher. That is how you do it. David Perez, ladies and gentlemen. David Perez, he continues to teach and is the author of the poetry collection Love in the Time of Robot Apocalypse. Find out more at thedavidperez.com or on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Renzo Gorio. Now, Every parent thinks that their little bundle of joy is the next Einstein. Isn't it great? He can count to ten. He's only nine years old. What a prodigy. Well, Barbara Shipka's teaching skills were put to the test by a new kid in her fifth grade class. His name was Ben. And Ben was... special. tested as a genius in terms of traditional IQ. He'd been having a lot of trouble because he was so smart. He was a loner. When we would go to the play yard, he would stand in a corner. He was clearly one of those sensitive, gentle souls. His parents, they were scared for him. What if there wasn't a breakthrough somewhere in this kid's life? The challenge began on day one. He was a little walking encyclopedia. It was like he was testing me all the time. I might be teaching a math concept, and if I didn't say it or do it exactly right, he would start to challenge my confidence. Any grammatical error or, (laughs) heaven forbid, I did a factual error. It was exhausting, exhausting. And I had 20 other kids, and seven of them didn't speak English. I don't know how I came up with it, but I just got to thinking that this kid has this meticulous mind. Clearly, he's strategic in how he looks at things. So I asked him one day, do you play chess? And would you be willing to teach me? He brought in a chess set. He was very patient with me when I would make a mistake. He wasn't playing chess. He was teaching me to play chess. We did that for some weeks, and there was a shift in his attitude toward me. It was harder to challenge me. He had a responsibility toward me now as his student. He started to care about me, is what I think. After a few weeks of this, I braved having the conversation with him. We were playing chess, so we weren't having eye contact at that moment, and I just said, you know you're smarter than I am, right? I mean, you do know that. And then I said, I know that too. And the only things that I have over you are that I'm bigger and I'm older. 
And those have nothing to do with being smart. His shoulders relaxed. We had named the elephant. Didn't have any power anymore then. We asked kids in the class whether they'd like to learn to play chess. Ben would be there early. He would just circulate. And for months, we had these chess sets all over the room in the midst of games. My least favorite thing to teach was science, which was his favorite thing. So we co-taught science for the second half of the year, which mainly meant he taught it. I had more power than I had when he was testing me. Way more power. Because I didn't have to fight him. Whatever this air of arrogance that had seemed to be there, you know, which is always a cover anyway, arrogance is, disappeared and he started to develop relationships with the kids. By then, he had developed a wonderful friendship with another one of the boys in the class. Distinctly remember these two because they were both very wiry and they would always walk around with their arms around each other's shoulders. At the end of the year, we had an informal meeting and I just remember his mother weeping out of gratitude and out of what joy for him which was also where I was, I'm getting teary now myself. It was wonderful for him, you know. When I was just a little boy I threw away all of my action toys Thank you, Barbara Shipka, and thank you, Julia DeWitt. First story on Snap Judgment, you brought the love. We appreciate it. Now, when Snap Judgment, the teacher-teacher episode continues, a miracle in London, a priest does what priests do, and someone is mean to Snap's Anna Sussman. Yes, as hard as it is to believe, it happened. When Snap Judgment, the teacher-teacher episode continues. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the teacher-teacher episode. We're talking about the power of teachers and teachers that aren't teachers. And you know, Snappers, there are all types of schools. You've got your Montessori's, your parochial schools, boarding schools, and choosing where to go can be a very difficult process. Our next story is about what happens when that choice is left in the tiny, fragile hands of a child, a child by the name of Little Anna Sussman. A few days before I turned seven years old, I made a stand. My parents were reading in the living room, listening to the record player. I crept up to them. I want to go to a real school, like the other kids. Until now, I had been attending the School of the Rising Sun a one-room wooden octagon in the snowy mountains near our house where hippie parents took their kids. There, I drank tea with other six-year-olds 
and we fed lettuce to a goat out back. There was some learning, but not much. I learned the alphabet, but not in order. And there was weaving, a lot of weaving. I had seen television at friends' houses. I saw real schools with hallways and cafeterias and gyms where kids were allowed to play competitive sports. I knew that kids all over the country were a part of something that I was not, and I wanted in. I wanted a desk. My parents were concerned. Are you sure, sweetheart? But above all, they believed in letting me make my own decisions. So they shrugged at each other and said, Okay. I arrived at the public elementary school midway through the school year, gangly and three inches shorter than any other kid there. I had no idea what was going on. Bells rang and kids shuffled in behind assigned desks. They knew times tables and took turns saying them out loud. At one point, everybody stood up in unison and began to recite a chant I had never heard. How did they know all this? My first afternoon, we were lined up against a cinder block wall and given a cup of warm green liquid, which the kids all emptied into their mouths. They called it swish. It was apparently part of a government fluoride program. They all knew to hold it in their mouths and then spit it in the classroom sink. I swallowed it and puked, and everyone laughed. At the end of the day, we would sit along the cement curb and wait for our parents to pick us up. I always tried to sit next to Noah Sandler. I was in love with Noah. He seemed to know exactly how school worked. He fed the class fish and got to walk at the front of the line to lunch, and he always handed out the worksheets for the teacher. When he came to my desk with a handout, I would try to look at him right in the eyes to show I was interested in being his friend. He had green eyes, and his hair was blonde, and he was really good at the monkey bars. And I wasn't the only one who loved him. Everybody loved him. Noah made no effort to sit near me, and a few times he actually got up and moved away when I sat down next to him. The worst part of the day was music class. We would leave our first grade classroom and walk down the hall in silence to Mr. Vanderbilt's music room. Mr. Vanderbilt was an enormous, sweating, angry man who yelled. I had never met a grown-up who yelled at kids. He was terrifying. I went home and told my parents that there was a problem, and could they please do something about this very mean music teacher? He really doesn't like kids. I think he hates us. Sorry, sweetheart. You wanted it. You got it. There's nothing we can do. That's the deal with real school. You have to work it out for yourself. Walking into school the next day, with the noisy kids and the bleachy smell, I realized I was all alone. I didn't know the songs or the times tables or how to do anything, and no one was going to help me. Then in music class, something happened, and I thought it was the end of real school for me. Mr. Vanderbilt gave us each a drumstick, and all the kids began to drop their drumsticks onto the floor because it made a cool noise. Mr. Vanderbilt spun around and said through his teeth, If one more person drops their drumstick, you don't even want to know what will happen to you. He turned to face the blackboard, and the room was quiet. But then, with breathtaking horror and in super slow motion, I watched as my drumstick slipped through my fingers, tumbled through the air, and hit the floor. I immediately snatched it up and pretended it wasn't me. Then I swallowed hard and began to tear up. I had never been in trouble. I had never had an adult really be angry with me. Mr. Vanderbilt swung his enormous weight back around. Red-faced and twitching, he snarled. Who did that? Who did that? Who? Everyone stared at the ground, but they all knew it was me the clueless new girl. Then, from across the circle, Noah Sandler stood up and said, I did. Mr. Vanderbilt yanked him from the classroom. 
I didn't see Noah again that day, and the next day he went back to ignoring me. But I had figured it out. I had wanted to be in, and I was in. Here in real school, we didn't sing free to be you and me around the wood stove. The teachers yelled, and the kids made fun of each other instead of sharing cups of tea. But I wasn't alone. No one was. There were tiny allies all around me. We just had to play our cards a little closer to the chest. That story was produced and lived by Snap Judgment's own Anna Sussman. Tell them kids they gotta stay in school or ride with us. You know we love the tunes on Snap Judgment. This is, after all, storytelling with the beat. But sometimes, even we get to stretch. And before you say, Glenn, why are you playing opera on my radio? That's not Snap. Well, wait till you hear this next story. Featuring performers who are anything but opera stuffy. Like, la, la, la. That's what I think opera is. Really deep, horrible singing, but it's not. I am Matt Peacock. In the late 1990s, I was a support worker in a homeless centre in the evening. And then during the day, I was an opera critic. So I used to have two very different lives, um, two kind of different worlds, both of which are misunderstood and and perhaps uh, feared a little bit. What I liked particularly about the homeless work was that everyone was so friendly and so full of hope. What I was extremely surprised about to begin with was how little people would complain about anything. They should complain every single day about what's happened to them. When I became homeless, I was living with my mum and my brother and my sister. But me and my mum started having really bad domestic violence. There was police officers coming out and... I just had enough. And it's like, oh, you're 16, you can move out. You know, when you hear that so many times, it just, it crushes you. They yearned for self-belief and to someone, for someone to be in their corner fighting for them. Being homeless, I don't know, degrading's the wrong word, I shouldn't use that. I'm trying to think of the opposite of uplifting and I can't. I remember thinking to myself, my God, if this is all that life has to offer, is it worth going on? One day, uh, one of the residents from the night shelter read out a quote from a politician in the newspaper. And the quote said that uh, the homeless were the people that you step over coming out of the Royal Opera House. The residents of the night shelter thought it was another occasion where they were being looked down upon and disrespected. So at that moment, uh, all eyes turned to me uh, as the opera expert in the homeless centre. And there was a blinding flash of realisation that we could put on an opera with homeless people. You, you could see that they thought that this might be an idea. So we, we gave it a shot and all, we, all I committed to was to put on a fundraising opera concert in the year 2000. Uh, we got a, a, one of the smaller stages at the Royal Opera House and it was a short children's opera. That was called The Little Prince. I'm going to be performing at the stage. I was like, oh my god, travelling like a leaf. Alright, here we go. Instant opera. When we started rehearsing for the production, we used to go into this night shelter which sometimes had no running water and uh, rats upstairs but the atmosphere as soon as we started working it was as if everyone had forgotten what the situation was they were living in hold your head up not so slack sir okay two three hold your head up not so slack sir we're working with amateur singers. Um, they, they have a number of special needs and special issues, including a high level of mental health issues. 
But if you don't believe in that people can succeed, I think you're selling them a bit short. I became a heavy drinker whilst I was with the army in Germany. Beer was cheap. It was good beer. And you got into the habit of drinking doubles. When you're dealing with professionals, it's helping you to get it right. You're somebody. It's that priceless little spark. I'm somebody. Not just another person in the doll queue, another person in the housing queue. We have to be very careful with the subject matter working on an opera that might include a murder or a suicide because it can unlock experiences that, that our performers have had themselves. So the process can be quite uh, challenging, but we come up all, all the time with incredible talent. As we built up to the performance date, the performers were just growing almost visibly. We were beginning to kind of have a better eye contact. They were standing tall. I love the diversity of like changing the mood. And then the next thing, we're like down on the floor going, forgive me, forgive me. Forgive me, forgive me. I get caught up in it. You know, it's like getting people intrigued and watching you. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are grey. The night of the first performance, we were all very nervous. And as the, um, as the audience started clapping, a few of them were standing up. And then everybody stood up, and it was a standing ovation. And the the faces of the performers, um, I'll never forget. They they really uh, they weren't weren't expecting a standing ovation. And I think for some of them, it was the first time they were they'd been congratulated. It unlocked something inside them. And a couple of days later, the reviews started to come through and we got five stars in The Times and four stars in all the other broadsheets. And uh, I couldn't really believe it. There was an enormous amount of interest for this programme to continue. But I had, I had a job, I had two jobs. But quite soon I convinced myself that if no one was going to do, do this, it wouldn't happen. So I had to do it. A lot of people helped and uh, within two years, we had a, a fully-fledged company running. We've put on eight operas. We're in our 10th year now. Currently, we work in 11 centres around England. We, we now do a big production every two years. I've got 31 people coming. It means so much, because my mum and dad have never spoke for years, and I really couldn't care less. It's like, leave that at the door. Yeah, coming to see me, doing something I'm really proud of myself, you know, and uh, I can't wait to go around and see everybody after the show and see what they thought. Somebody comes through the door uh, very unsure of themselves and in a very bad space, and by the time they perform in one of our performances, they believe in themselves and they're hungry for getting a job or getting into housing if he could do this with Streetwise Opera, surely he could take on anything else in his life. A whole new beginning has just opened up for me. I'm going to look through a prospectus and I'm going to get into a drama course so I can get that piece of paper as well because at the end of this, I want it more than anything. This summer, Streetwise Opera is organizing an epic performance for London's 2012 Olympic Games. 300 homeless people will sing at the Royal Opera House. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu, by Hannah Andrusi, and Loftus Productions. Some of the audio in this piece originally aired in a documentary for BBC's Radio 4. Thanks so very much to Streetwise Opera, to Matt Peacock, and the amazing performers we heard from Carrie Ann and Doc. 
see, there really is beauty all around us. When you change one person, you really do change the world. For real. Don't go anywhere. Snap Judgment will be right back after the break. Stay tuned. downtown Oakland, California, from NPR and PRX, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the teacher-teacher episode. Our next story comes from Justin Sweeney. He wrote to us on our website, snapjudgment.org, and gave a story that really blew us away. My mom was, she was sort of an interesting person. My mother was a, a nanny. She didn't drink, smoke. She didn't speed when she drove. I mean, as far as anyone could tell, she was basically a model citizen, except that she had a really bad gambling addiction. She would essentially hang out and play video poker for 24 hours at a time. She would spend all of her money on video poker, all of it. We wouldn't have toilet paper. She'd come home from the donut shop that had the video poker machine. I mean, basically what we would have to eat is the donuts that they were planning on throwing out, old stale donuts. She'd come home with a garbage bag full of them. She was not hesitant in the least bit when it came to physically disciplining all of her children. My mom's boyfriend, Dan, he was a, you know, like a martial arts expert. They lined us up and they beat the living hell out of us. My friends in junior high, we would all wake up Sunday mornings and go to Catholic Mass, and our parents would not be there. I mean, it was like, it wasn't because we loved church, it was just because we all loved Father Dennis. Father Dennis was just a really good guy in every sense. He was always just really encouraging to the guys, and everybody looked up to him. There was more than one, so I was able to go in and talk to him. His office was always open to me. I just decided to run away because I just was so unhappy with my home life that it didn't really take much to convince me to run away. So I, I went to a dance that night, and I just never came back home. I didn't call my parents or anything. I went to my good friend's house, and, and he saw me, and, and he kind of lost it, asking if I'd seen the news lately that my mom was on it. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I had no idea. So I sat down in front of the TV for a long time at my friend's house, waiting for the news article to come back up. I probably sat there for four hours. And when it finally did, they showed my mom that they they'd arrested her and the reporters were surrounding her. And uh, my mom was being charged with killing a two-year-old. My mom's video poker addiction had such a, a tight grip on her that she went and played video poker for six hours while she was watching that two-year-old. She left the baby in the car the entire time during the Louisiana summer, and she got the maximum sentence for manslaughter out of that. She, she got 40 years in prison. I didn't have a reaction at first. It, I was stunned, confused. I didn't know what my life was going to look like now. I was living with my mom's boyfriend at the time, and I was kind of scared to go home because I didn't know what would happen. Father Dennis, I talked to him, and he knew that I was in kind of an abusive situation at home, so he was also nervous for me. And we got into Father Dennis's car, and he drove us to my mom's boyfriend, Dan's house. When we got out, I, I was pretty scared. Father Dennis could see that, and uh, he could just kind of put a comforting hand on my shoulder and, and said that, you know, it was going to be all right. 
And when we sat down and talked to Dan, my mom's boyfriend, Dan said the most unbelievable thing in front of everybody. He, he said that if I hadn't run away, my mom wouldn't have felt the need to go and play video poker. And that it was actually my fault that she'd killed a two-year-old. People use the term deer in headlights. It's kind of a loose term, but I really felt like I, I'd just gotten hit with the train. I just, I thought what he was saying was true, and I, I thought it made perfect sense, cause and effect. I was the reason that child lost its life, and I was responsible for it. I just said, okay, okay. Father Dennis, he was able to get me get me out of there. But when we were walking out of Dan's house, Father Dennis completely cut into that line of uh, self-destructive thought that I was having and just said, you are never going back into that bastard's house. He called him an SOB and he used the F word. And I was, I at that point was, I thought that was a bigger deal than being blamed for a two-year-old's death because I'd never heard him talk that way. and I had never seen Pastor Dennis angry. And I, I just assumed that was a giant sin that he was committing. When we left that night, he made it clear that it was not my fault and I was not to blame. It helped me not personalize it quite so much. I, w I lived with my friends for a while and, uh, and I went to a, a Waldo Burton group home. Father Dennis looked out for me that entire time, and I, I felt like I was better taken care of some, than some of the other kids that actually had parents. He would have his secretary go and, and buy me clothes, and he would bring me bagels. One of my best memories in my entire life growing up was when there was about a two-week youth group trip, and Father Dennis took me on that trip. Went rafting, went camping that night. I still never forgot that and, and how he did what he could to help me. You know, I've never really had things like that happen in my life. I've never had people stand up to, to come and make life easier for me. So if it weren't for Father Dennis, I would have gone home that night. My life would be completely different. I, I would no doubt still think I'm to blame even today. Yeah, my wife and I were, have been married for seven years. We've been therapeutic foster parents for a little bit over five months for now. It's, it's gone really well. My foster son, Alden, if things didn't get better for him living in our family, they were going to put him in an institute because he had been so violent. Over the past five months, I mean, nobody can believe the changes that he's, has happened with him. I would say in the same way that Father Dennis, seeing that impact he had on me has really helped me to want to do the same thing in Alden's life and be that person that Alden can come to and talk to. And I just rack my brain to explain life's meanings and give him the absolute best answer I possibly can, but I know it'll never quite be as good as the one that Father Dennis gave me. Justin, thank you so very much for sharing your story with Snap. One love from all of us. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Real snappers know that for some of us, even when we want to learn, something gets in the way. Our next guest, Joe Buford, he comes to us from the good folks over at StoryCorps. Joe Buford, take it away. Nobody in my family really knew how bad it was with me and how hurt I was over it. My wife did not know until after we was married. Some mail came one day, and normally she'd tell me what came and what needed to be paid. But this time she gave it to me and said, here, read this. And so she found out that I couldn't just read something from top to bottom that tore my heart out. And at this point, I was working in the shop that repaired construction equipment, and they wanted to give me a desk job. And I know that I couldn't do this. I would lay awake at night trying to figure out how can I tell them I didn't want the job. And so I told them that I was satisfied with what I was doing. Most of the time I would just try to stay in the background because I just didn't feel worthy of being up front for anything. Do you remember when you first found out that you were going to have a baby? What did that feel like? Well, I was excited about it. And at the same time, I thought what was wrong with me would be passed on to my kids. And I was so afraid that they weren't going to learn to read. The biggest thing I was afraid of was the child getting up in my lap and asking me to read something to her. This terrified me. So one day I asked both of them, 
Could they read? And they said, yes. We can't remember when we couldn't. This just made me feel so happy that what was wrong with me, I didn't pass it on to them. You and I have been working together for three years now, Almost I think. three, right. Yeah. What made you decide that you want to try to learn to read? Well, after both of my girls are married and gone, I thought now's the time I really need to do something for myself. And I thought, well, I'm going to give it a year. If I can't pick up anything, I'll know it's just not for me. Do you remember when you realized that you really were picking it up? Uh, yes, I jumped up, I ran through the house. <laughs> <laughs> it made me cry. And I'm thinking, wow, it really is sinking in. You were the best thing ever happened to me. You have changed my life. Well, you changed mine, too. I'm looking forward to the next five or ten or however many years that we still have to work together. Well, so am it's I. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Joe Buford, thank you, and thank you, StoryCorps, for producing that piece. StoryCorps is a fantastic partner in the story game, and you can find out more about what they do, maybe even share a story with them, at StoryCorps.org. Our regular contributor, Daya Lakshmina Ryanen. It's hard to imagine that when she started out, her eventual success seemed far less assured. I was a bad kid. I stole other kids' coats. I punched kids in the nose. I would steal their food until they cried. My mom tried to give me extra love. She thought that maybe loving me instead of disciplining me would make me realize I should be a better person. This is my mom. Uh, You were very naughty. Boy, you scribbled all over the wall, you know, with the crayon or eyebrow pencil, you name it. My mother was losing it. She had tried everything. Before uh, we started kindergarten, I took you to the school and showed you the classroom, the playground. And then the time came for kindergarten readiness test. Which asked you basic questions like, what is this shape? What's your address? What color do you see? You couldn't answer any of them. But I taught you everything. She said, I didn't feel like it, Mom. And then the teacher told me that uh, she may not be able to go to kindergarten this year. You may have to, you know, keep her at home for a while. And then because you were so naughty, I was so scared that, you know, I may have to put up with you for one more year. So I was ready to do anything at that point. Finally, they took you in the kindergarten. But uh, you never be able to read anything. Your daughter is not able to read, you know. Uh, maybe she's not smart enough to do that. Probably you don't have a smart kid, you know. That broke my heart. When she talked to other relatives, they would be like, your daughter doesn't know how to read yet. So they sort of looked at my mom like, you must not be doing a good job. So um, I kept reading, took you to the library, nothing. The other kids were all reading, Dr. Seuss <laughs> and Leo Leone, and, and you were still happily dancing and, you know, singing and never paying attention. But I thought I had a stupid kid, you know. <laughs> One time we were on a road trip, and it was at this point that I decided that I needed to show them what was inside of me. And then we stopped at the rest rest area. And then in the rest area, all first time in your life, you started reading the graffiti. Oh my goodness, I said, don't read those things. I was pushing my mouth, you know. Mom, you wanted me to read, right? I am reading it, okay? Oh, but not like this. You have to read the books, not the graffiti. Were there, uh, were there bad words? <laughs> of course. What can you know? It's not Shakespeare that wrote <laughs> graffiti on the bathroom walls. To be or not to be, that is the question. Be thou chaste as pure as Go on, enemy! Big thanks to Daya and her mom for sharing the story with us. 
And don't worry, friends, I learned how to read. In fact, she went on to get two degrees from this little school, um, some call it MIT. Now, Daya's also a comedian. You can find a link to her website at snapjudgment.org. It's that time. And you've been so good. I'm sending you home today without any homework. But what? You want more Snap? Not to worry. Episodes, movies, pictures, video, and extra credit await your pleasure right now at snapjudgment.org. Join Snap Nation. Get in the conversation. Facebook, Snap Judgment. Our Twitter handle, snapjudgment.org. And you know we're on the iTunes. Snap was produced by myself and the most impressive group of troublemakers ever thrown on a class. Give it up for the class clown himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. The teacher's pet, Anna Sussman. Stephanie Fu plays tricks on the mean girls. Pat Mercedes-Miller smokes in the bathroom. Jamie DeWolf, he doesn't go to the bathroom. The dog ate Renzo Gorio's homework, and Julia DeWitt hates dodgeball. Lindsay Lee Keel has pointed glasses, and Will Urbina goes to school on Saturdays. You know that kid that wears large pointy hats and is always mumbling about the one ring of power? Don't make fun. That's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Grab him by the hand, sit him at the Dungeons and Dragons table. Let him know that Snap will bring the 16-sided dice. Many thanks to the CPB, American Graduate Initiative, for producing this show. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media, whether the public likes it or not, prx.org. And now, you know this is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, you might see a young but naive teacher recently graduated from college, dropped down in the mean streets of the inner city neighborhood, and through the power of her will, she could lead the scrappy heart of gold students to win the big debate competition against the mean private school. All the while, learning a few dance steps from her friendly African-American students along the way. Actually, you will never hear this storyline on Snap. And if you do, you will still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.